On this episode, I interviewed Toby Edwards, who is a strength and conditioning coach and researcher who recently just finished his PhD. We first started talking about Toby's time in the U.S. He's originally from Australia, but decided to go to the U.S. to do an internship with a couple college teams. So we talked about why he decided to go over there, what his role entailed, and what were his biggest takeaways. We then moved on to why he decided to pursue his PhD and what his PhD topic was. He then talked about the different studies he performed and highlighted the importances of each one. So his PhD mainly focused on speed, and we mainly talked about the youth junior athlete population and how he applied speed and the importances and the biggest things to know of speed within that population. So we then finished off on designing and implementing some speed programs for that um, junior athlete, youth athlete, and biggest things to focus on, biggest takeaways from his research. So great episode. Here it is. Welcome to No Week Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to No Week Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood, and today I have on Toby Edwards, who's a strength and conditioning coach and researcher who just recently finished his PhD. So thank you for taking the time to be on, Toby. If you first just want to maybe give a general background um, of how you got where you are today, and then we can dive in into more of our topics. Yeah, sweet. I guess, first of all, uh, thanks for having me on on the show and giving me a bit of airtime to speak about kind of what I've been up to throughout my PhD and a little bit. I guess, beforehand. Um, I guess if we go back to, uh, I'll start when graduated, uh, undergraduate degree, exercise and sports science from Notre Dame University. Um, went on to do a one-year honours uh, project. So I was uh, an assistant strength conditioning coach at South Randall Football Club with the seniors at that stage. So I was lucky enough to kind of embed my, uh, honors project uh, with with some of the data that was being collected there. So um, we really just looked at physical capacities and match performance with that one. Um, and I was, I guess, lucky enough to to do well enough with my honors to have the opportunity to um, jump straight straight into a PhD, which uh, which is the direction that I ended up taking. Um, and then from there, uh, I, I spent. A few years in in the US, uh, I was at Purdue University, mostly with uh, their men's basketball program. I mean, that was maybe 2017, 2016, 2017 year. Um, and then I went over and spent um, a good maybe like six months at, at Western Michigan University with their football program, really before coming back um coming back to Australia and finishing off off my PhD, I was lucky enough to kind of come back into the same role at South Fremantle um, that I was in when I left, um, which was kind of good to go in full circle. Um, and that's where I kind of really developed my PhD and, and we collected data and embedded it within that program. Yeah, good summary there. And I think, well, We'll obviously dive into the different parts of, of your time in a second here. But I guess first off, we'll talk about your time in the U.S. and why you decided to go there and kind of the differences between that versus Australia and the things you learned and took took out of it. 
Yeah, sure. So I guess as as we all are as strength coaches, where most of us are, are big sports fans, and and growing up over here in Australia, you know, we all follow the the college system and, and the NFL and the NBA and whatnot. Uh, so it was always a goal to at least get over there and, and you know get some experience uh, in that world, uh, see what it's like, um, and yeah, I was fortunate enough to make it happen. Uh, just through through networking, I know uh, Greg Half was one of my supervisors, um, so I kind of lent on him a little bit, and, and uh, Tanya Spiteri, who had spent some time at Purdue herself, just with some networks. Um, I reached out to them, and I was like, "Look, this is what I really want to do. Um, can we facilitate this somehow?" Uh, so Tanya was. Uh, I was fortunate enough that Tanya kind of put me in contact with Purdue University and Josh Bonitol, uh, who was a men's basketball strength conditioning coach there. Um, and then I guess from there, it, it evolved and I ended up um, spending a year over there with their men's basketball program, which originally started um, really just as as like an intern, like everyone else really, just learning, kind of learning the ropes. I was new to the... Um, I guess the US, the US system and, and the culture and environment that they have over there. So it was definitely um, eye-opening. Um, and again, fortunate enough to to be there at a time where there was a lot of like staff turnover. So Josh had an assistant basketball strength coach um, that uh, had left Purdue. And so he kind of, you know, allowed me to, to buddy up with him and, and be his like unofficial kind of assistant uh, strength conditioning coach uh, with their men's basketball program. Where well, a lot of my, I guess most of my role was supporting him, but then I looked after a lot of, a lot of the tech stuff. So we, uh, we kind of explored a little bit of uh, different jump metrics on, on force plates, pre-training, post-training, uh, pre-game, post-game, um, and and really looked at this with uh, some GPS data. And then we had a sports, we had like an analyst guy. I think he's still there. Um, that would that would kind of marry up some some training data um, and, and player performance from from games. And so we had a we had a good look at that. Um, and that was kind of my my introduction into. Uh, U.S. college basketball. Um, after that year, we uh, Josh ended up leaving to uh, Future Fit um, with a startup company, um, and then so I had we had our football program that had uh, their staff had kind of dissolved and, and went elsewhere as well. And the connections I made there allowed me to. Uh, move up move up to, to Michigan uh, where I spent some time at Western Michigan uh, under Grant, Grant Garb uh, um, with a football program. So I guess even just moving from, from basketball to football, it, it's a, a completely different culture, particularly around uh, strength training and the weight room, um, uh, which, which was really good to, to be a part of. Um, and again, I, I, I really had like a similar role. Um, I, I looked after the GPS 
uh, on the guys and then looked after our, our measuring uh, or our kind of physical testing data inputting into spreadsheets and then making it uh, available to coaches in a, in a presentable format. Um, and then obviously, you know, setting up setting up the lifts and then coaching um, where possible. Obviously, at Western Michigan in a in a smaller school, they only had two strength coaches there with a hundred plus athletes. So, um, more eyes the better. Um, then, yeah, I really enjoyed my time there. Yeah, and I think I guess one thing I always like to ask I've I've had uh, Ben Griffin who did a similar thing. I uh, went to the US, came back. I guess one thing I like to ask Australian strength coaches, because obviously I've been on both sides as well, seeing Australia and the U.S. college system. What's the biggest difference is that you've noticed uh, pros and cons of each, things you liked, things you didn't like of each, and um, what you took away uh, as yourself as a coach? Uh, I think when you look at the – they're all similar age, so like working with uh, kind of cult footballers here, so, you know, 19-year-olds, um, 17, 18, 19-year-olds, and then even with the with the senior waffle guys, it's the it, it's not it's not such a the 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 culture around like the players wanting to get into the weight room to improve their their performance isn't isn't quite there. So a lot of it I've found here is particularly at that age group is like educating the players as to like why we need to do this um, and then trying to complement the training uh, or, or their football training with their uh, weight room training. And a lot of often, often the times that I find over here is that players tend to avoid um, doing anything in the weight room because uh, they'll end up like too sore and they don't like feeling sore for training or whatnot. Uh, and, and most of the time it's because they're too inconsistent with their training. Um, over there, it's, it's a little bit more ingrained within the program, right? So you're, you're, you're on scholarship, college basketball player, college football player. You know, it, it is expected of you to uh, get in the weight room and, and lift with, with a strength conditioning coach. And I think that's ingrained from, from high school, um, it was just kind of a part of a part of the a part of the culture and a part of their upbringing, um, and so having it ingrained or like able to have more time with the athlete, you're able to firstly like educate them on the importance of training, um, and you're able to build a you have a little bit more of like a higher training age. Okay, so um, they're a little bit a little bit more competent and open to to resistance training. Um, so there's that. I think that's, that's I guess, the culture aspect of it and the upbringing and the, the ingrained, um, you know, strength and conditioning within sports um, compared to over here where kids, you know, just played whatever and they get through fine until they're not fine and then they have to go and, you know, do some type of rehab. And then in regards to uh, the, actual, the actual training, um, what I really liked about being in, in America was that, uh, well, the places that I was at, they were really trying to like push the envelope and push the line for like performance gains. Like how can we, uh, like what are the physical capacities that this athlete requires to, you know, improve their game? And like they really went after um, improving those capacities where 
the training over here, particularly, you know, similar age group. And I think it's just based on their training age. Like a lot of it is just like educational and like how well can you move first, which is, I think we can all agree to say that, you know, that's the most important thing when, when training a youth athlete. A lot of that is where our time is spent um, coaching athletes how to move well. Uh, so a lot of the time we don't get to uh, really chase um, you know, huge performance gains because we're spending it. How well are you performing a squat? Like, can you hinge? Sometimes it's like, can, like, can you do a correct push up? How do you, how do you control your, uh, control your body under some more like dynamic movement? Um, a lot of the guys you try and you do, you were just doing like basic speed work um, because their positioning, like their A position is all over the shop and their, their torso or their trunk can't stay still. Um, so that's that's kind of where we spend our time. Um, and I'll, I'll put that down to, again, training age and then and then the time that we get to, to spend with our athletes. So over here, we don't get much time with them. We have uh, where I work at South Durant or with the, with the Colts program, we might train well, pre-season, we train three times a week. Uh, a lot of that time is away from the club, so we don't even have access to to a gym. Um, and then, you know, they're there after school. We have them for two and a half, two and a half hours, and, you know, two hours of that mostly is spent uh, training to improve their football skills, so their technical and tactical skills, which I... I believe is 100% okay, but it would also I would also love to to have a little bit more time with them to further accelerate their their uh, progress. Yeah, and I think that's a good point of of the the training age of how much you can push versus over here. It's you know you're still applying the same principles, but sort of at a later date, I guess than than in the US. Whether that means they're starting earlier or they're not getting as much time spent on it, so they can't progress as quickly. Uh, in, in, in terms of, I guess, delivery of, uh, the coaching delivery, was there any big difference you noticed or anything like that? Or was it pretty, pretty similar in your opinion? And then after this, we can move on to more of your PhD topic. Uh, yeah, coaching delivery, I guess, um, what you see over here with strength coaches over there is a lot of like, um, uh, just stereotypical, I know you might have a lot of US listeners here perhaps, but just the the hype guy. Uh, there's over in over in Australia. We don't have strength coaches that I've that I've met and work with. Not overly like hype guys. But when I was in when I was in the US, you know, Josh um, Josh had an excellent relationship with his players, and you know, when when there was times that he needed to be that hype guy, he was that hype guy. When it was times when you know. The, like he could breed the athlete, didn't really need that. Athlete was driven on their own. He was kind of there just like supporting them and guiding them as to, uh, you know, what to do in the weight room. Um, and the same thing, same thing was uh, with Grant Guy at, at Western Michigan. Obviously, football, again, is a different culture from, from basketball. Um, there's a lot more... Uh, uh, 
I don't know, you have a lot of athletes, so how well can we uh, manage a large group of athletes? And I think that's where the, not like that, you would call it like the military military kind of organisation, like everyone's on this line in, in this order, whatnot. Um, before I was involved with it, I was like, surely there's got to be a better way. But uh, when you think about trying to manage and organise large groups of athletes, um, I've, I've definitely taken a lot out of how um, Grant used to used to run a large group of football players versus over here when I've had to run kind of a large group of Australian football players um, in a very similar approach. Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, obviously that stereotypical hype guys probably with the U.S. is thought about a lot but i do think like it really does it well because you, you know he provides avenues for maybe if someone in the u.s isn't that hype guy still can get into a similar thing and obviously a combination of both is probably what you need as you mentioned you know in, in understanding your athletes when you need to bring it up bring the energy up when you can tailor it back i think that's that's an that's an important thing to understand as well yeah i really think um uh again one of the biggest things i took over from particularly purdue basketball and josh was it, it really doesn't matter about the sets and the reps and the load that you're doing with the athlete if you don't have a good relationship with the, with the athlete. You're never going to get the, the intent that you require for your stimulus and adaptations if you first and foremost don't have a good relationship with, with your athlete. And that was, yeah, like I said, probably one of the, the biggest takeaways that I, that I took from Josh and, and, and his learnings. Yep. You know, I think that's a good summary of all the differences and gives people a background of all the differences of Australia versus U.S. But I think that's our main topic today and the thing that most interested in here is um, I recently finished Ph.D. Uh, if you just want to give us a brief overview of, of your topic and we'll dive further into it. Um, yeah, we can start there, I guess. Yeah, so the title of my thesis was the assessment and development of speed or sprint performance in junior Australian football athletes. Uh, and the idea of that stemmed from my time in in the US. Um, Josh is a big speed guy. Uh, obviously, speed is an important quality, trained quality in American football. Um, and we did a lot of it uh, kind of at, at Purdue with the basketball players as well as at West Michigan with the football guys. Um, and it whilst I was there, I was like, why do we not really spend much time on this at all in Australia? Like, uh, why do we not try and improve this quality? So that's where it stemmed from. Uh, there, there's really not too much work in, in Australian football on speed development and speed or like improving their speed capacity. Uh, so I did a little bit of research and decided that's the path that I wanted to take with my PhD. Um, and then we obviously following your, your PhD follows a story, uh, the research proposal, we laid it out. Um, we first at, at this time when I started, JB Moran and, and Pierre Samazino and, and the French group were, uh, well, they just developed uh, their sprint force velocity power profiling. Yeah, so we had, uh, we went out and bought a radar gun and then set out to try and investigate force velocity power or sprint force velocity power profiles in uh, junior Australian football athletes. So that's kind of where the assessment part of 
the thesis came from. And then at our final study or second last study, we looked at what type of training intervention can we implement within the context of uh, a junior Australian football program where we don't get to, to see our athletes a lot. So the first study we took was a reliability study. So uh, uh, between day reliability, how, how stable are these, are these metrics? Okay, so week-to-week uh, assessment. And then first of all, what we found was um, anything that was related to the start of the sprint, so um, your theoretical maximal force, so uh, horizontal force, um, from you know from your from your start position, um, and your and the slope of the force velocity relationship throughout the sprint was wasn't very stable and it was highly uh, variable. Okay, so going forward, we had to understand that you know if we are going to see changes between groups and between athletes based on an intervention, then we're going to need uh, like a large improvement or uh, decrement to be confident that a change has actually occurred, okay? Whereas other, other variables such as our theoretical maximum velocity, your maximum speed, and your ratio of force, we, only, we needed to see kind of smaller improvements. So I think we ran, so we used a coefficient of variation to identify uh, the variability between uh, weeks, but then we also use a minimal detectable change uh, with 90%. So how can we not? So we can be 90% confident that a change has occurred in this variable if it is greater than X. Right? So that was our first study. Um, and then so going forward, that was an important study because going forward, that's what we use to determine whether there's actually a change between groups or if we're doing a longitudinal, we're testing over a period of time, then we can be confident that a change has actually occurred and the difference in the test is not just due to error or noise within the assessment. Does that make sense? And I think just just before we we go on, I think that's a big thing that um, a lot of strange coaches and even like young coming into to research that we don't um, people don't account for um, they'll see like oh wow we got like a two percent improvement in you know vertical jump like fantastic it went up but often that two percent um, is just noise or error in the test like your natural variation within jump height say in a vertical jump is two percent so is there even really a change or not? Most likely, most likely it's not a change. Um, and this can vary between different populations. So there's been some other reliability stuff within rugby and then female sports and, and younger athletes, and, and it's slightly different. So uh, if anyone's listening and they're doing any performance tests, even within their own athletes, um, you're not a researcher, to be confident that either an intervention has worked for you um, or your athlete has, you know, oftentimes we're, we're monitoring and we need to identify when uh, when do we need to act? Like when is their performance at a point where we need to kind of 
change their training load. Um, we need to know like what a meaningful change is. So I'd recommend um, any strength coaches, researchers to firstly identify or go and find some research to, to help you guide your decisions with with when um, with when a change is actually a change or whether it's actually just noise in the test. Um, anyway, that was my first study, um, probably the most important one because it set up the rest. We then did a we did an observational study. So we had um, essentially just tested our, our Western Australian state uh, under 18s team. So these guys are the the best footballers in Western Australia, and pre COVID they would have played the best footballers from South Australia, Victoria. Um, Tasmania, New South Wales, Queensland, et cetera, on a national stage. We, we, we tested them. We tested uh, just regular waffle under-18s players. So these guys play at the kind of the highest level of the state, below those that are selected um, to represent the state. Uh, we tested state under-16s and we tested uh, waffle under-16s. And then within South Romano's uh, academy, we have, a four, we have a 15s and a 14s program. So what is that? One, two, three, four. We had five different groups um, and then we were just trying to identify differences between the groups. And then essentially essentially what we found um, was that the differences were obviously the younger guys were, all of their metrics were, you know, significantly less than, than older guys. Um, but then when we, the, really the important things that we found are the key findings were between state 16s and state 18s and their, their non-selected counterparts. And what we identified was that they had greater theoretical force output. So their ability to produce force at uh, low velocities was greater than non-selected athletes. Yeah. So essentially they were faster over 30 metres but they were faster over 30 metres because they had a better acceleration where their maximum velocity capacities were very similar. Yeah. Uh, we then moved to study number three. Uh, we looked at, like, okay, cool, we noticed a difference. In study two, we noticed a difference from uh, junior athletes or younger athletes and, and older athletes. So we looked at uh, what does is, what is maturation look like and how do these uh, differ between kind of uh, pre-peak high velocity, mid-peak high velocity and post-peak high velocity. And then what we noticed was that uh, guys in the, in, in the mid-peak high velocity group, um, it was kind of a, we started at the early uh, pre-peak high velocity and we noticed like a small like dip. It was a, it was a non-significant dip. Um, so it sat within that error margin. Uh, but then we saw a, a significant improvement in their post-peak height velocity athletes compared to your pre- and your mid-peak height velocity athletes, which really makes makes sense um, with all the all the maturational-related physical and physiological changes that occur during that time. We then set out to follow that, so a longitudinal study. So we noticed that obviously 
there's an improvement in, in sprint performance and theoretical maximal force, ratio of force, et cetera, in, in post-peak height velocity athletes compared to the other pre- and, and mid-peak height velocity athletes. What does so this look I, like? Could I just – could you explain maybe just briefly the what the pre- and post-peak high velocity athlete is and then just define that term and then we can go back in. Sorry to cut you off just to yeah, – Yeah, yeah, perfect. Sorry, I'm, I'm – yeah, just assuming knowledge. But yeah, um, I should have gone back and uh, mentioned it. So peak light velocity, we used a, 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 like a formula to uh, derive an athlete's peak light velocity, um, which is based on its Merwold's, Merwold's uh, equation. Essentially, we get seated height, standing height, um, plug it into the Merwold equation, and it gives us an estimated uh years to peak height velocity and then what we used was uh, some thresholds within the literature to uh, group our athletes according to where they sat with their years to peak height velocity okay, so peak height velocity obviously uh, the time in, in a child's life where their uh, their, their, their height increases uh, the greatest okay so we, we split it we went uh, negative one to one, uh, one plus, and then negative one for less. So we had our pre, our mid, and then our post group. So what we identified was that um, the faster athletes, uh, so our, our post peak high velocity athletes, so those that had gone through, uh, you know, experienced maturation um, earlier than the other athletes were had a better ability to apply force at low velocities and they were able to uh, maintain a ratio of force, maintain a horizontal force as velocity increased. So essentially they had a better acceleration ability. Yeah. Their, um, their theoretical maximum velocity, so their velocity capacities kind of still remain relatively similar. We move on into, we, we track this longitudinally, so over 18 months, and we wanted to identify, okay, well, do these, in the same athlete, how do these performance variables or how does that, the, the, the mechanical uh, performance of, of speed change over a period of time? And do they improve more with uh, later developing athletes, so in your mid and pre-peak high velocity athletes compared to those that have already gone through maturation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, And then so what we found there was that uh, there was no significant differences from uh, the change in pre-peak high velocity athletes and post-peak high velocity athletes. So their improvements were relatively similar or they lied within our minimal detectable change and so we can't say that we we're confident that a change has actually occurred or the difference had actually occurred when we looked at the group as a whole so pre and mid peak high velocity athletes we noticed there was significant improvements in uh, many of the variables so their acceleration ability if you look at theoretical maximal force and ratio of force and their uh, 
velocity capacity, so the theoretical maximum velocity and their max speed and their maximum power, theoretical maximum power, improved um, over 18 months. Um, and that that was just a, a develop. We can't put we can't say uh, a definitive cause of that. Obviously, these these guys are kids and they're playing a lot of different sports. You know, in the in the summer period, um, between footy, footy, a lot of them are playing cricket and then doing extracurricular activities. Uh, so we can't really put it down to um, you know a particular causation. However, I think it's just the development. As, as children grow and become uh, become stronger and more coordinated, that their, their speed performance improves. Um, after that, we identified that, well, what is the physical capacity or what is this within the force velocity power profile? What is it telling us that as a strength coach that I would need to improve to improve their, their speed, Okay. And what we saw throughout the studies was that the uh, theoretical maximum force or relative theoretical maximum force, so horizontal maximum force at low velocities, improved the least um, over time, longitudinally. Um, And it was a metric that didn't really change between... uh, that changed kind of, sorry, was significant between our state 18s and our non-selected 18s, okay? So to make my athletes faster, uh, we needed to improve their relative theoretical maximum force. How do we do this? We need to overload um, that capacity, okay? So we, we set out to do a resisted sled training study over eight weeks, um, Given the context that we were in, so we trained three times a week um, and saw them for like two hours a session, two and a half hours a session. So I was lucky enough to have a head coach that allowed us to embed the the program within our our training. Um, So what we did, we we kept it at, we had an 80% body mass sled loads. Um, We ran 10 metres eight times. So we did eight sets of 10 uh, with two minutes of rest in between each rep uh, for six weeks. And then we had a tapering week and then we tested again. Uh, and what we found was the, the 80% sled load were improved their maximum power uh, significantly more than uh, theoretical maximal force. Uh, and 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 our velocity capacities. So looking back, uh, limitations of that study were we, we really didn't account for the friction of of the sleds with the grass. Okay, so it was just a, um, a standalone eighty percent body mass on a sled. Um, where did this fit? Kind of like what was the actual load required or force required to move the sled? Um, and looking back, you know, we're really trying to, if we want to overload that, that, that force capacity, we're going to need uh, like a heavier sled over, sm- over smaller distances. Um, and then a better way if you have uh, some resources is to look at uh, a load velocity profile. 
and then we can really identify what load on the sled on this given surface uh, equates to X amount of velocity decrement from an unresisted sprint. And then uh, then we know, like, look, if we want to try to improve our uh, maximum power output during a sprint, so like your 10 to 20 metres, um, then we're probably looking at 50% VDEC, so velocity decrement from an unresisted sprint, what load equals a 50% of uh, velocity decrement. If we're more looking towards how can we improve uh, acceleration capacities, so like 0 to 5, 0 to 10, then we're really looking at what load will equate to a 75% velocity decrement. And then if we're looking to improve, uh, you know, speed or velocity capacities, we're generally looking around like a 25% of velocity decrement. And that's why things like 1080 motion and, and those are really good because they're, you know, we can set the loads easy and then, um, you know, it provides us with kind of instantaneous feedback on, on their performance. Yeah. So uh, we, yeah. Don't have, we don't have to worry about friction with the grass. Yeah. So I guess if, if you're trying to implement it practically for as many people as possible, the easiest way at that moment would be to figure out uh, what the different velocity decrements are for each characteristic you're trying to train and then figuring out how much weight on that sled hits that velocity decrement roughly and then training in that with that weight to try and hit your specific um, trait you're trying to train. Is that correct? Yeah. So, yeah. In, a, in an ideal world, we would get each athlete's load velocity profile. Um, and so, for example, you and I, you might be a lot stronger than me. So it's going to take a heavier sled for you to get to 50% VDEC or velocity decrement than it would for me because I'm less stronger. So we have then prescribed that intensity or that load differently amongst our athletes. And then in the literature, um, that's kind of like the gold standard way now to um, you know, individualize load for athletes. Um, and then, so this is where, so if we're in our training, like we're in the maximum power, this is what we want to improve within within our force velocity profile. Then your 50% VDEC might be 100 kilos, where mine might be 70 kilos, but we're still training at 50% velocity decrement. Yeah. Okay. However, in a in a in in my setting and a lot of strength coaches settings in Australia. We're not going to have access to this. Uh, so best best practice is to use, uh, you know, feasibility time. We, we often don't have the time um, to, to train and test and find everybody's velocity decrement. Is to use, uh, well, our studies proven that 80% of, of body mass uh, will improve your 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 sprint performance and your speed capacities. However, it improves maximum power more so than it would uh, theoretical maximum force. So it really it, it's really improving an athlete's kind of ten to twenty meter performance more so than the early acceleration. 
Yeah, okay. Is there anything that you would say, whether that be drills gym-wise, that is going to um, improve that uh, horizontal maximal force? Um, obviously, because that, that's the main metric you want to improve there, correct? Yeah, that's what, that's what the... Uh that's what our previous like, early studies identified was that that's the metric that didn't change through, through an athlete's life development. And most of the time, I believe that that's because athletes in, increase their body mass uh, and, their, and their relative strength doesn't increase with their body mass. So essentially their relative strength, strength either stays the same or can decline as they get older. So that's where the area we need to try and target and train with. And then if we identify that, if relative strength is 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 an area to improve or a weakness within a gym capacity or in in a sprint force velocity power profile, then we're really looking at how can we improve relative strength? And then that's just that, that, that's in every kind of strength coach's ballpark. And then I guess relating it back to my thesis and sprinting, um, and it was a question that we'll probably get into a little bit later is, well, if what happens if I find somebody that's uh, like got an excellent theoretical force capacity, so they've got an excellent acceleration, we identify that they now need to improve their velocity capacities. Well, if we break down um, to improve accelerational velocity, we need to first understand um, what all the capacities of of acceleration and maximum velocity. So if we're looking at acceleration, it requires, if we're comparing the two, we have there's, there's less force in acceleration over longer ground contact times. However, the force is applied, we want the majority of the force to be applied horizontally with the rest of the force vertically to keep our, uh, to keep upright, okay? Compared to velocity, where if we're trying to improve maximum velocity, our force is more, there's a greater force application. So ground reaction forces are higher than acceleration. They're produced over a much shorter period of time, ground contact time, and their ground reaction forces are, are vertical compared to acceleration. We want to keep them more horizontal. Okay, so knowing that, um, what exercises or, or what stimuluses am I going to really need to apply to improve the capacities of that? Um, that's how we can start to to kind of derive a a, a speed training program. Okay, and then and then going a little bit further, uh, we can look at. Um, oh, I had it on the top of my head. Um, uh, what was it? Well, what is sorry? This is what is what is the what is the goals of of a, of a training program if we're trying to improve speed? Well, we're trying to firstly improve the ability of the athlete to produce to put force into the ground, so relative force production, because that's what's going to make you accelerate and then improve your velocity. We want to do that. Uh, we want to be able to then orientate that force uh, appropriately, so applied in the correct direction 
And then we want to do that over shorter periods of time. And then so using both of those, um, so the capacities of acceleration, the capacities of velocity, and then the overarching, uh, how do we make somebody faster? With youth athletes, the low-hanging fruit is just to improve their relative force production. Okay, so as a, as a strength and conditioning coach with uh, a little knowledge of actual how to improve speed, you can go a long way to improving somebody's ability, like their speed ability by improving their relative force production and then looking after their body composition. Okay, so if we can improve relative force production, if we can give them the ability to apply force into the ground, then that will automatically uh, improve their, their, their speed ability or their acceleration ability, ideally. Once we've identified that the athlete has the capacity to produce force into the ground, that's when we can look at, um, uh, you know, technical improvements, okay? We can do this. We often don't do one, and then once that's kind of that bucket's filled, we move into the other one. We can do this simultaneously or at the same time. However, again, low-hanging fruit for these athletes is to get them their relative strength greater to apply more force into the ground. But then at the same time, we can work with them on, on some, some technical aspects as well to help them apply it in the correct orientation. So sorry, for with, with, um, with trying to produce force, is there, is there a specific uh, exercises or a specific way to produce certain um, orientations of force or is it just increase their general ability to, to produce force and not get that specific well, low-hanging fruit would be to improve their just their general capacities to produce force. And, you know, we can do this in a multitude of ways. We can uh, – you can use sleds depending on the, your environment and the context that you have. Um, we use sleds at South Miranda because we're off-site. And so sled is our biggest bang for our buck. So we've used different sled loadings, body mass, um, push sleds with the same intent. If it's same with anything, if, if the if the sled's heavy, then it's going to move slow. If the sled's light, then it's going to move fast. So to improve uh, lower body strength capacities, uh, we alternate um, the loading of the sleds um, to get a, to get a lower body strength uh, stimulus. However, if you are in the weight room. Um, same principle applies uh, using different loads to improve different strength capacities um, in the athletes will go a long way to improving their speed. Um, even if you don't kind of have a true grasp of, um, you know, the technical aspects of sprinting. So with, with our with our guys, um, ideally, um, the ones that could get to a gym either before training or after training, I tried to to we try to like marry the stimulus of sprinting or of if we're, it's an acceleration day 
we'll try and marry the same stimulus that we get in the weight room. Um, and ideally, we do our field because they're athletes first. I'll do it on the field first and then they'll lift after, depending on, on the times. So if acceleration is, if acceleration is um, more of a, like a concentric muscle action, um, long ground contact times, then what we're doing in the weight room is also reflecting that. So this is where we might do like full range uh, squatting uh, or even a box squat. Uh, so like long ground contact times, lots of ranges of motion um, that'll replicate what's happening with our acceleration day. Concentric force emphasis. Whereas when we do our maximum velocity day, what we do in the weight room um, will reflect the uh, what's happening when under maximum velocity sprinting. So what we've noticed now with the trend is that as we're during maximum velocity, the muscle is acting isometrically where the tendon is lengthening. So we have like elastic energy storage is applying that force where the muscle is you know, remaining the same length. So it's not undergoing an eccentric contraction. It's definitely not undergoing a, a concentric cr- contraction because the ground contact times are so fast that we don't have time for the muscle to act. So then within the weight room, we're, we're, we're trying to replicate that. Okay, So that's where we, we do a lot of like uh, yielding isometrics, so holding like a heavy load under different, uh, if we're looking at, we might get like a, we can do like an ankle isometric and we're trying to, you know, hold that stance phase of maximum velocity sprinting um, through through a knee iso or an ankle iso to really try to replicate the forces that are required at that angle during the stance phase of maximum velocity sprinting. Um so that's typically how, how I try to uh, marry up the stimuluses. Um, again, it, it doesn't always work like that within within the setting that I'm at. Um, but we do our best. So what can I do in the on the field um, if I don't have access to a weight room? Well, we can do uh, like continuous broad jumps. We can we can. Um, we can bound, we can hold a, a yielding isometric uh, hamstring um, using like using the ground um, just to kind of get some stimulus in, into our athletes. Yeah, and I think those are, those are all good ideas for the or practical and ways to apply in the gym work. You, you touched previously on some more tactical type drills you'll use with this population as well. Obviously your, your biggest thing is trying to increase force with those um, more strength or um, load bearing exercise. Uh, is there, you want to finish up on some, some ways or different technical drills you think are, are most important for this age group or that you found most important. And then we can summarize anything that again, you think is most important overall. Yeah. Well, the, the furthest I've really got with our, with our technical uh, speed work is an A-series, and we do this every single warm-up, okay? So uh, we'll go through an A-walk, okay, making sure everybody's got adequate hip flexion, 
um, the foot is sitting directly under the knee and their toe is up and they're maintaining a good posture, okay? Their pelvis is tucked underneath them. They're nice and tall and nice and balanced, okay? And we'll just go through an A-walk. Some of these guys are still all over the place doing an A-walk. They just don't have any type of awareness of where their body is in space. But we're just going to keep nailing it, nailing it, nailing it. And we don't, we'll progress that to look after the guys that are, that are, comfortable, uh, that are competent in that movement. So we'll go A-walk, we'll go A-march, where we're really looking at striking the ground hard, maintaining an upright posture. Uh, we'll go into uh, switch. So this is generally where everyone um, a bit more dynamic. Uh, a switch, trying to catch that leg with uh, nice and high, the hip nice and high, maintaining our posture, and then not kind of being all over, uh, losing our balance with our with our trunk. Um, and then we'll do, so we'll do this. Uh, Unloaded, we'll do it banded, and sometimes we'll have a dowel above our head. Um, and essentially, that, that's almost as far as I get to within the warm-up. We might go into like some A runs or some kind of double switches, triple switches, um, and then we'll do it like linearly, laterally, um, etc. And then I, I, I've, I've set out some hurdles previously uh, to run some wickets within the warm-up but I'm really just constrained with the time that I have with the guys and how long it takes to set up multiple lines of wickets to get 60 athletes through a warm-up. Like it's just, it's really not, um, it's really not feasible for me to do that. Um, and obviously we go through, I implement some type of uh, Altus Rudiman series um, double leg, single leg pogos to get to try and get some tendon stiffness within the warm up, um, and so that's really where I'm hitting the technical aspects um, of running, um, and it's just you know doing it over and over and over again. Um, the guys get better with practice. Yep. No, I think I think that's a good summary of and ways to implement that after the findings of your PhD. Do you have any? I guess do you have any what are your biggest takeaways if you want to reiterate what you've already said or any biggest takeaways with training the youth athlete within speed from your PhD that you think others should um, try to focus on here and then we can um, finish up there. Yeah. So I think youth athletes, um, if we're, if we're trying to improve the youth athletes sprint capacity um, or, 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 you know, improve their technique. It, it's definitely a time where uh, we can teach them how to run a little bit better uh, before they get to like late or kind of early 20s where it's a little bit more like ingrained within them. We can spend some time and, and, and you know, really just allowing them or teaching them how to get into like a correct A position how they strike the ground with their foot. Can they maintain adequate dorsiflexion? Can they maintain maintain upright posture? Um, if they can do that, I guess, consciously over a number of period of times um, during training, then unconsciously playing playing a sport, hopefully that, that skill will, will transfer. Uh, I definitely think that we can do better in that, uh, instance 
particularly like I'm in WA um, within the football athletes. I think we can implement a little bit more within uh, our warm up at least. And then uh, improving speed capacities. I think as a strength coach, you know, even if you don't have a full grasp on uh, the underlyings or, or the capacities or exactly how to improve speed, um, you can go, it, it goes a long way to, to look after somebody's body composition and then really just honing in on improving the athlete's ability to produce force. Um, I think they've, there's a quote, uh, Les, Les Spellman, I've seen him say, if, if you don't have the capacity to produce force, it's not really going to matter how good you are technically. Okay, so that's a bit of an extreme uh, quote. We can, we're obviously working on both at the same time. However, to run fast, you need to apply a lot of force into the ground in the right direction over short ground contact times. Okay, there's, there's many of ways to skin a cat. There's a lot of different systems and processes to get that done within whatever environment that you're working at. But if we keep that in mind when we're kind of, if that's a goal and we're trying to design a, a speed training program, um, then I think you, you're going to go a long way, particularly with, with youth athletes. Yeah, perfect. Now, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for taking the time to be on and explaining what you found of your PhD and, and ways to apply it. So I think that's some good knowledge to take out, especially for that younger um, athlete population. Uh, if you just want to share where people can can follow you or if you have any questions, um, follow up, and then um, I'll put that in the show notes for you. Yeah, definitely. So uh, my Instagram, you can find me on Instagram at Toby Edwards underscore PhD uh, and then on Twitter at the same at the same handle at Toby Edwards underscore PhD um, yeah shoot through shoot through sorry any questions DMs um, that you have and, and uh, I'll get back to you and you said your research is up on ResearchGate as well for anyone else that wants to read that too right yeah, yeah. so uh, if you follow I have through my link tree on my Instagram you can have access to my research gate otherwise you can if, if you're familiar with research gate you can you can probably search me and then find find my uh, studies online perfect well thanks again for taking the time to be on no worries thank you for having me Thank you for listening to No Week Links. If you'd enjoy the show and would be able to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated as it would help the show reach more people. I also provide free strength and conditioning content and injury rehabilitation content on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood, on my website, www.patrick-wood.com. All this information can be found in the show notes. Thanks for listening.